Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hi. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they're made, and explore the roots of the characters in the story, except for it's June. And if you guys know what happens in June, you know that Claire and I get one year older, one year wiser, wiser one year better more looking. beautiful, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we decide, and we get to pick the topics that we do. So... It's a, we call it the birthday spectacular. So today's or this this year's birthday spectacular, we did it a little differently. We picked a topic that came out in the year that we were born. Yeah. So this now you guys know will know how old we are. Yeah, and I get to go first. And Claire gets to go first because I was born first, both in year and, and in month. It's true. <laughs> it's true. So the year I was born was 1986. I'll let you all do the math, and. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot, it's a lot of, of math. What? It's a lot of math. It's a lot of math. <laughs> um, and I, you know, spent some time going through the zeitgeist, working out what came out in 86. And I want to go over some of my options and how I came to what I came to, because I don't think it's what you would expect from me. I am going to say 1986, when we were looking through our years, 1986 is an embarrassment of riches compared well, to 1989. I think you say that because of one very specific thing that came out in 86. 89 had some great stuff, too. There's a couple. There's a couple. Right, well, right. there's Aliens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> your favorite movie, which we did last year, so it wasn't even an option. It's true. There, the book It by Stephen King came out. And I actually have never read Stephen King, which I always feel is like this cultural blind spot. Mm. Um, but I don't really like horror I'm yeah. not into scary things. I would like to read Stephen King one day, but he's never a priority of mine. I was really tempted to do Redwall. I loved Redwall. The, yes, the first Redwall book came out in 1986. I just felt the themes that we're going to explore today are a little bit more relevant than the themes we would explore in Redwall. I might be wrong. We might do a Redwall episode later. And Maybe one day. I'll learn so many things. Mice with swords. <laughs> Um, Howl's The Moving Castle, the book, also Howl's came out that Howl's Moving Castle, end. yeah. Yeah, which is wonderful, and I think everyone should read it. Again, I'm going to talk about the comics that came out in 86, and you'll understand why I picked what I picked. So, Watchmen came out in 86. That's a big one. Mouse That's a by huge... Art Spiegelman came out in 86, which Not was the first one. comic ever to win the Pulitzer Prize. And The Dark Knight Returns came out in 1986. Now, while Mouse is... The first comic to win a Pulitzer Prize, and it's about a man—well, it's about this man's father's experiences in Nazi-occupied Germany as a Jew. It didn't really fit with our theme of dragons, sexy robots, and adventures. No. And for my birthday, I didn't know if I wanted to— to Talk about the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. Um, Watchmen, I was really tempted by, but there's a Watchmen TV show being developed, and I just— Is there really? Mm-hmm. And I just—I think it's on HBO, I huh. think— and I just have this feeling we'll be returning back to it at some point. So I decided that we would explore The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do a comic because obviously this is the year that changed comic books forever. It and was. there are many articles that say 1986, the year that changed comics forever. Certainly with Watchmen and Mouse. And Claire White's birth. And they also say that. <laughs> they always, they, <laughs> they always the, say that. That's the, the subheading. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, Batman's my favorite comic book character. He's pretty cool. I don't know why. We can talk about this in opinions, but yeah. I love Batman. I always have. Yeah. So I figured why not explore the comic that defined Batman, and we'll talk about how The Dark Knight Return changed comic books and how he changed Batman. So that's going to be my history segment that's anyway. That's going to be pretty exciting. I'm going to be talking about Frank Miller. Yeah, which is also very exciting. He's, he's a talented dude. He's very talented. 
Also very strange. Ooh, well, I can't wait to hear. But first, you must listen to me. I'll listen it's to my you. Birthday. It's your birthday, Claire. <laughs> All right. So to explain the effect of the Dark Knight Returns and of comics in general on the year 1986, I'm going to start at the beginning of comics. Comics have actually been around since the late 19th century as part of magazines or newspapers. They were just small little blurbs, small little silly cartoons that you would see to brighten your day. There were tons of characters in these early comic strips. Most we wouldn't recognize today. I think the most recognizable character would be Popeye. Of course, Popeye was yeah. in the, the early, or late 19th century. Yeah, I'm not sure. It or might be like 20th. early 20th, late yeah. 19th. In 1929, Funnies Number 1 published a newspaper supplement, which is kind of considered the first comic book. It's not quite the comic book formula we would know today, but it was the first separate book that was a comic. Um, 1930 is the start of the golden age of comics. And in 1933, famous Funnies, a carnival of comics, was printed (laughs) and would be the first publication today we would recognize as a comic. That was, so they were re- literally called funnies. Yeah, Because you always hear that, funnies. like, see in the funny papers, you yeah. know. Yeah. Like, I think comics became either more serious and more focused, and I think funnies still kind of refer to, like, the short little Yeah, like, blurbs. you know, like the Calvin, Calvin and Hobbs, yeah. Garfield, or whatever you'd yeah. see in the Sunday Post. Uh, 1930s is when National Allied Publications, which would later become Detective Comics or DC Comics, started publishing comic books. And it's when both Superman and Batman appeared and both were hits. Entire families would read about their adventures in books, in the paper, on the radio sometimes, too. These characters were pretty big. In the 40s, comics remained popular. 30% of publications sent to the troops abroad were comics. And that saw the creation of a lot of famous characters we know today, like Captain America, Bucky Barnes. It makes a lot of sense. You know, when you're 18 years old, you're still kind of a kid. You would like comics, too. Right. Well, I think comics can actually— They were for everyone. —are for everyone now and were originally drawn for everyone. You know, in the same way you read The New Yorker, and there's a little— Picture. Funny, yeah, it's yeah, true. Funny. A little, little funny blurb. Quite frankly, when comic. I had a subscription to The New Yorker, the little blurbs were my favorite part. <laughs> Which I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> Claire is a child. <laughs> After the war, comic sales declined. Superhero comics became less popular. However, Western, romance, crime, horror, and sci-fi comics started doing very well. But... This made adults nervous. There was a rise in crime and horror comics, which also coincided with a rise in juvenile delinquency. Oh, man. They got the spray paint. They're throwing rocks at windows and stuff. (laughs) Whatever they did in the 40s and 50s. Whatever you do in the 40s and 50s, stealing bottles of milk. And anyway, I know we've talked about this before, but this led to the crusade against comics led by Dr. Friedrich Wortham. And you can go into our earlier episodes. I think yeah. it was in our... Uh, we talked about him in X-Men, I think. We talked about him in Spider-Man, maybe. Right, because he keeps on coming up because he affected comics so much. But yeah. he truly believed that comics were responsible for juvenile delinquency. Delinquency. This was based on shaky, insubstantial evidence. But Wortham used it to testify on Capitol Hill. And he managed to get the Comics Code Authority created. And this was an authority that comics had to be submitted to before they were published. And this basically sanitized most comics to the point of being unrecognizable. Most comics were canceled. Well, most, a lot were canceled. 
And a lot of publishing houses had to close to basically to the point where just DC and Marvel are the only ones that remain from that time. And we've talked about this in our earlier episodes before. Yeah, that's right. Because there was a there was an X-Men villain who was named Sauron, who was a pterodactyl that sucked life energy. And originally he was supposed to be a vampire. But because of Friedrich Wortham and the Comics Code Authority, vampires were banned from comics. Mm -hmm. So they made him a giant talking pterodactyl. Yeah, which I guess is better. (laughs) Which I guess is better. (laughs) Superheroes barely managed to survive this cleansing. They were cleaned up a lot. Apparently, Wortham particularly targeted Batman because he used guns. And his relationship with Robin was, quote unquote, homosexual. Oh, they're just buddies. They're they're best friends. So (laughs) in the comics, he was made brighter, nicer, and they gave him Vicky Vale, a new love interest. (laughs) Not gay. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The 50s. (laughs) Um, And because of this code, comics became less popular, rarer, and eventually were only sold in specialty stores or comic book shops. And over time, they stopped being sold on newsstands, which basically alienated most of the population and most children. Because the way most children might discover comics is picking them up on the newsstand when mom was shopping and you're bored. Yeah, that's true. The thing is, parents didn't really care. Comics had been tarnished. And so you, you didn't really want your kid reading comics anyway. They might become delinquents. Can't have that. And also, comics tended to be written for a more adult audience, since for the most part, the comic book publishers were trying to maintain their existing readers instead of gaining new ones. Okay. Since kids weren't going to really have yeah. access to them anyway, and adults weren't going to give kid com- yeah. kids comics for the most part. Now, I'm going to drop... The code was eventually dropped because it was ineffective. Because comic book shops started popping up as, like, the biggest source for selling comics or the biggest distribution centers of comics, publishers didn't actually have to rely on distributors and they could sell to shops that didn't have to have the codes okay. So publishers eventually stopped adhering to the code, especially as I'm going to get into later, comics that followed the code weren't as popular. There's no way that the Dark Knight Returns adheres to the (laughs) comics code authority. I don't know, Dr. (laughs) Wertham wouldn't have approved. No, Dr. Wertham would not have approved. Now, I'm not saying that in between the 40s and the 80s, nothing great happened in comics. You had Stan Lee and Jack Kirby basically creating every Marvel character you've ever heard of. But we're not talking about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. We're talking about uh, we're not talking about Marvel. We're not. We talk about Marvel a lot, but not today. We're talking about DC. And specifically, we are talking about the Batman Now, like I've mentioned, Batman got scrubbed up quite a bit in the 50s, which led to the very popular Adam West show. And this is for the most part was what the public thought of Batman. So a lot of like, boom, pow. I mean, it was like hokey to like an extreme. It's like a suit made of felt. (laughs) (laughs) Now, DC did try to grow Batman up a little bit in the 70s. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams tried to make the character more noir. But Batman had disappointing sales, despite the fact that when polled, readers always listed him as their favorite character. Now, Batman wasn't the only problem for DC in the 80s. Their whole multiverse was a hot mess. Multiverse is basically the universe, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where all the characters come together. But DC's multiverse in the 80s had all kinds of inconsistencies where something would happen in one plot line that basically couldn't happen in another plot line. And they would explain these inconsistencies as alternate universes. Infinite Earths. Exactly. 
And there just became too many universes for them to deal with. And to solve this problem in 85, DC published Crisis on Infinite Earths, this, yep. as you were saying, by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, where heroes from all the alternate universes came together to take down a villain. And at the end, all the universes were destroyed, allowing DC to create one universe basically getting to start from scratch. Yeah. Um, they and Marvel have done this multiple times since, but um, Crisis of Infinite Earths was the very first time. Now, when DC was picking characters to reboot, they got to decide the new tone of these new comics, and a lot of the lighter elements were removed. They were, again, catering to this older audience who they thought would actually buy the comics. Plus, it was the 80s. There was Aliens. There was RoboCop. There was Terminator. Things were violent in media. Yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> I'm going to bring in Frank Miller here. I'm doing a really brief little thing about him. I figure you'll get more into him later. Frank Miller was this hot shot kid. He was already a celebrity in the comic book world. He made Daredevil into a critical and commercial success. DC had been trying to poach him over. They finally did. And they were trying to get him to work on Batman. And they offered him complete creative freedom on Batman, which it just sounds crazy yeah, to me yeah. that you were that desperate. But I guess he wasn't doing very well. He was only selling about 20,000 copies a month, which is very low for Batman, at least was low back then. So he writes Batman, The Dark Knight Returns. It debuted in February 1986, and it was a four-part miniseries. It was the darkest, most adult take on the character, completely different from the 60s Batman TV series. All the idealism was definitely gone. Not a lot of idealism in there. <laughs> Miller brought Bruce Wayne's personal trauma to the forefront of the character, and it was also a standalone experience. It gave the audience an ending. How do you think this did? I, because of my a research, know new. that it was uh, a very big hit. <laughs> it was a huge hit at the time, yeah. which I guess was kind of a risk. Though DC actually didn't really know that this was going to happen. They were too absorbed in rebooting Superman, which they were doing as well. And Wonder Woman. And Watchmen was coming out. Yeah. And so, Watchmen was coming out too. Wow, that was big. So they had a lot of stuff going on and no one quite expected it to be as big as it was. Yeah. I read that it would be on shelves one minute, gone the next, would sell out in less than two hours. DC had to keep going back to the press. With this and with Watchmen, as I mentioned earlier, that came out later that year, the media claimed that comics had grown up. It was critically acclaimed as well, which was a really big deal for comics. I've also seen it argued that Miller and Moore were the Hemingway and Fitzgerald for the comic book industry. They the, made the literati start paying attention to comics. I love that phrase, that Miller and Moore were the Hemingway and Fitzgerald However comics. you want to take that. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> now, also, because of the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, comics entered the dark phase or the iron phase of comics. Really? So it's like the gold age, the, the silver, silver age, age, the bronze. The iron age. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that appropriate for the it's 80s very and metal. 90s? It is. That Metallica was doing right. the black album. A then. lot of people call it the dark phase. I've seen it referred to once or twice as the iron age. You know, yeah. to keep with the metals. Yes, definitely. This very is metal. the phrase at phase, as you can guess, where grim and gritty as a, f a phrase were commonly used. 
these comics became a model for at least a decade's worth of comics. I would say that a lot of comic book writers now are still very heavily influenced by Miller and Moore, though they have others in between as well. Publishers pushed violent antiheroes like Venom, Spawn, The Punisher. If you don't know those names, you can look them up if you're interested in comic book antiheroes. They are comic book (laughs) antiheroes. They paved the way for Rob Liefeld. He's one of the most popular comic book creators in the 90s. He created Cable for the New Mutants, who's in the new Deadpool movie that just came out, Deadpool 2. Being played by Thanos. Being played by Thanos. Uh, He drew his characters with darker tones, and this was copied by many other artists and writers. Image Comics, which was also partially created by Rob Liefeld. You talk about this in one of our episodes as well. Our Beowulf episode. Our Beowulf episode was created in the early 90s where creators had complete control over their content. They were free of the Comics Code Authority, and they started relying heavily on sex and gore and boobs. There were a lot of characters in those early image comics that had huge tracts of land. Exactly. If you want to hear more about it, you should listen to our Beowulf episode. Kyle does a really interesting segment on the creation of image comics. As with all trends, there have been some huge successes in the Iron Age with this grim and gritty theme. Doom Patrol, The Sandman, Spawn are some of them. But a lot of times, like we kind of touched on earlier with Image, creators would try and emulate the Dark Knight, but they would miss the larger picture. So they would make this more mature comic, and I say mature in quotes, and only focus on surface surface details like violence and sexual assault and boobs. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Also, if you look at the time period, like you mentioned this was the 90s. There were a lot of jaded, cynical Gen Xers. Grunge, Kurt Cobain, Mortal Kombat were really popular. So this also fit in with yeah. what was going on or the culture at the time, popular culture at the time, I should say. So however frustrating, you, frustrated you can feel with violent antiheroes and grim, gritty, overly sexual comics – You can see their influence in a lot of the works of some of the greatest artists now. Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Miller, Ed Brubaker, all of them obviously are influenced by Frank Miller. And every Batman written since The Dark Knight Returns is Frank Miller's version of Batman. I was noticing that too as I was reading the comic. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously influenced all of the live-action Batman movies since. Burton, Nolan, and Snyder have all said they were influenced by Miller's drawings. He is DC's ambassador to the world. And in a sense, he's comics ambassador to the world since Batman is the most popular character by far. So my entire thesis for this whole entire thing and the point I'm driving at is that essentially Miller evolved and made the character, for better or for worse, that represents comics to the masses and has represented comics to the masses since 1986. Yeah, man. I mean, he did. I I totally agree with you. I think we're maybe that's changing more now with the Marvel Cinematic Universe being such a big part in the cultural zeitgeist where we are now. But up until this point, If you were to think of a comic, you would probably think of a Batman comic. And if you thought of a Batman comic, that Batman comic was derivative of Frank Miller. Right. Even the 90s cartoon series. That's a darker Batman. Yeah, that's true. And that's where I was first introduced to Batman was that 90s TV series. Same here. I can't 
Yeah, it had to be. Which I still watch sometimes if I just want to watch something fun, feel a little nostalgic. And see a Batman. Yeah. Kevin Conroy, who's a voice actor, is a great Batman. Mark he's, Hamill he's one is of the, the best. Joker. Mark Hamill's the Joker. Uh, so you can ne- I can never hear another voice besides his yeah, now when I yeah. think of the Joker. And you're right, that show is really informed by The, the Dark, Dark Knight, Knight Returns. Returns. That's very cool, Claire. I loved your segment. And Friedrich Wortham was such a bastard. <laughs> right. I think he really thought he was doing things like the best for society. Yeah, I yeah. think he thought he was saving the children. Yeah, and just they thought they were saving America with the Red Scare too, but <laughs> Yeah. Everyone was scared of yeah. comics and the Russians. And the Russians. <laughs> so I'm gonna switch gears here and talk a little bit about Frank Miller, uh, who wrote and drew The Dark Knight Returns. Frank Miller is an interesting guy. Um, In an interview with CBR, Miller was asked about what he thought of the Frank Miller of the past, the one who wrote that comic. And Miller responded, quote, he's a pretty angry young man, but he loves his heroes. He still does. Um, And I feel like that is a great introduction to Frank Miller and to The Dark Knight Returns. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because it's an angry book and -hmm. it's an ugly book. But it loves Batman. But it definitely loves Batman. And it really was, like you were saying, one of the foundations of the gritty, cynical, anti-hero archetype that we would come to see so much of and suffer through <laughs> for the rest of the for the rest of forever. Right. And, and also enjoy. When and it's done enjoy. well, it's wonderful. It's um, but I want to talk a bit about where Miller came from and what helped uh, lead him to the point of writing one of the most praised comics of all time. Now, Frank Miller was born in Olney, Maryland in 1957. Oh, is that by you? It is. In January, to a large Irish Catholic family, the fifth of seven children. And I really only note this because my father was born the same year, two months later, in the same place, to a large Irish Catholic family, also the fifth child of seven. Is your father Frank Miller? Maybe my father's Frank Miller. Or if my dad was on this podcast and he had to pick something he wanted to do for his birthday year, his birth year, he could do it all about Frank Miller because he came out that year. <laughs> um, it was just such a funny coincidence. I, I kind of I wanted to mention it. And I feel like it kind of resonates for me with this book because the you know, Dark Knight Returns is a lot about father figures and mm. aging men. Um, and I wonder what would have happened if my dad and Frank Miller became friends or something. But alas, Miller and his family moved to Vermont, where Miller would spend the bulk of his childhood. So maybe Shucks. he would have been happy if you had your dad as a friend. Maybe he would have been. And yeah, then he wouldn't have written the Dark Knight. Maybe I would have known him as Uncle Frank. <laughs> Gosh. So as a kid, Miller loved comics, and he remembers picking up his first Batman comic in 1963. And he says that even though it cost 25 cents, he bought it. Um, And Miller claims that he just sort of fell into the world of Batman and to the greater world of detective stories and film noir as well. He cites Alfred Hitchcock as a great influence on him, which I feel like you can really read in The Dark Knight Returns as well. It's a sort of shock and uh, kind of that shock and and feeling you get from not being able to look away from something that's so ugly and depraved. Mm. You know, it's like it makes you uncomfortable and it's gross, but you can't help but stare. Now, Miller eventually moved to New York City as a young man to pursue his dream of becoming a comic book artist, which I don't know why I giggled. That's like a really cool dream. It's a dream. good dream, yeah. It's a, it's a really cool dream, but people it is have funny. People here for less. I know. It is, you, when I think of people moving to New York to be to like make it, it's like, oh, they want to be an actor or they want to you know, be a beat, musician? a beat writer or a musician. Mm. Not, you know, I'm going to move to New York to draw comic books. 
Um, he got a tiny one-bedroom apartment in Soho, and he began began work as a carpenter to get by, which is what his father did. It was apparently mostly small stuff, hanging doors or fixing small things around an apartment building. It sounded like he was an assistant to a super, uh, but this apartment building was apparently owned by a Coke dealer. <laughs> and uh, That also makes a lot of sense. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, and the depravity and political corruption and, uh, quote, urban decay of New York would go on to inform so much of Miller's work, especially The Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. You can see that. Oh, clear. The city yeah, it's is clear. It's, not doing it's well. It's eating itself. And in the late 70s and 80s, you could argue that New York was in a state similar to, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on in that comic. Like, there was people were really afraid of crime. Crime was a big deal. Now, when Miller arrived in New York City, he apparently made three calls, one to Marvel, one to DC, and one to a personal hero of his, uh, comics artist Neil Adams, who was one of the people in the 70s trying to make Batman darker, mm-hmm. which who you mentioned in your, uh, your segment. So Adams' daughter answered the phone and put her father on, um, and Adams actually credits his daughter for him giving young Frank Miller a chance. Adams says... Quote, obviously she felt sorry for him because he was a skinny kid who looked like Ichabod Crane. Uh, This is from a Guardian article by Sam Thielman. Now, Adams also says that when Miller showed him his portfolio, that it was just terrible. He said, quote, it was so bad, my heart sunk, and I was like, oh my God, one of these guys. (laughs) Uh, This is from that same Guardian article. Um, many young artists who came to Adams for feedback were often humiliated and never returned, as you'd imagine, for someone saying, wow, that's terrible. Yeah. Miller was different, however. He was just so happy that one of his heroes was giving so much of his free time to help Miller improve. He's like, oh, really? It's bad? All right, well, can you help me? And Adams said, sure. So, like, even though he was super critical, Miller was like, at least he's helping me. Right. That's a good attitude. And, um, you know, though Adams was a, a Neil Adams was a big influence on Frank Miller, Adams says that he did not, quote, make Frank Miller. He says, whatever you do, don't say that I'm responsible for Frank Miller. I've done the same thing for 100 guys, and nobody responded the way Frank did. Nobody advanced that quickly, and I made it hard for him. If you'd gone through it, you'd have gone home crying. <laughs> I never would have thought that he'd turn out to be what he is. Oh, he sounds like the worst art teacher. I know. It sounds really <laughs> However, harsh. he made Frank Miller. So. He, no, he's didn't saying make he Frank didn't Miller. make Frank. Yeah. But that Frank Miller was willing to take abuse and work on his stuff and, and, and keep trying. Um, And eventually, after many sessions of Adams critiquing Miller's artwork, uh, Adams decided to help him get a job. And Neil Adams picked up the phone and got Frank Miller his first gig as a comics artist. And it was an uncredited three-page Twilight Zone comic that appeared in 1978 that Frank Miller has said in other interviews that he's tried to go out and find all the copies of to burn (laughs) because he's so embarrassed by it. Now, in 1979, Miller did get a job uh, working as a comics artist, working for Marvel as the penciler on their Daredevil comic. Um, and we talk about this, you talk about this specifically in our Daredevil episode from years ago. Yeah, one of our first episodes. Yeah, that was one of our early ones, maybe in the first 10. Um, and you mentioned it in your segment before that that uh, Miller's artistic style helped bring this comic back from the edge of cancellation. Um, Miller's style was born from this marriage of his love for film noir and detective media, like when he was a kid, and this really gritty, dirty streets of New York City that he lived in. Uh, his dark cynicism came from living and working in a major metropolis that was in the throes of a major crime wave. Like that, I obviously wasn't in New York City in the early Me 80s. Me neither, but... 
I've seen the movies. I've seen war. I've seen the Warriors. <laughs> but no, when you talk to old New Yorkers, like we live in New York now, and you talk to people who lived here forever, they'll say, they'll say like, "Oh, the '80s, you couldn't ride the subways." Right, but it was better. It was dangerous, but it was better. It was That's grittier. What they normally say. <laughs> so Miller would eventually be given the job of artist and writer on said Daredevil comic, and eventually just the writer in order to meet deadlines because it was too much for him to be drawing and then writing the comic. His Daredevil run would be noted for creating the characters of Elektra, Stick, and the organizations of The Hand and The Chase. Didn't he kill Elektra too? He did. He created Elektra, he killed Elektra, and then when he was writing Daredevil in the early 90s, he brought her back from the dead. <laughs> too good. <laughs> so he's he has a history with her. Um, which anyone who watches the Daredevil show should know the names of all these people. Uh, they are a pretty huge deal, and we also cover this on our episode. They're also a big deal in Marvel Comics. The hand is something that keeps on reoccurring throughout this Marvel's history. This is true. So after Daredevil, Miller would work on a six-issue run of a character and story he created called Ronin. And this is for DC Comics. And Ronin, I feel like, is kind of an extension of his ideas of the hand and his love for, like, Eastern kung fu movies and stuff. Ronin was about a samurai reborn in a future dystopian New York City and is credited, actually, as one of the precursors of cyberpunk. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And if you think about it, the really dark, gritty city landscape that Frank Miller creates in a lot of his comics are very reminiscent of mm-hmm. cyberpunk. It has that cyberpunk feel. Yeah. So in 1986, Miller was approached by DC to do a run on Batman, which obviously is what got us to where we are now. Uh, Miller was initially too afraid, though. He said, quote, I'd always wanted to do Batman, but I didn't feel I was ready to do him. I was kind of spooked by Batman because he was such a big deal as a character, and all I'd done at that point was Daredevil. But while I was doing Ronin, which is a comic series from before, I got over my fear, and I decided that I'd jump in and do it, and I got ready. I did a lot of research, and when I came up with the idea of making him older than me, I was sold. And this is from a CBR interview uh, by Scott Hoover. I also read that he was 29 and Bruce Wayne was 29, and that kind of freaked him out. And so he decided he needed to make Batman older, older exactly. to still give him this authority. Yeah. Well, that's all. That's exactly what I'm about to say too. Is mm. that is that he, um, according to Miller, the idea to do an older version of Batman came from his own life, just notched up a bit. He says, "Quote: To me, turning 30 was becoming an ancient. Batman had to absolutely be older than I was. <laughs> now we all know Batman is eternally 29 in the comics, so I had to do something about it." And that's exactly right. The tone of The Dark Knight Returns is very much dark and cynical. And it's coming from a Miller who lived in a city where he had been mugged multiple times at gunpoint, having guns waved in his face as people took what little money he had, especially the early days as a comics artist. Um, So Miller says, quote, I made him as old as I could conceivably imagine a man could be, which is 55. (laughs) And by doing that, I made him older than me. I made him a lot crankier and was able to move him through time into a world that much more resembled the world that I lived in, 1986 in New York City. So as the tone of the story grew darker and darker, Miller started catching some flack from other DC Comics employees. Uh, But he says that the two people at the top, who are Paul Levitz and Jeanette Kahn, always gave him the go-ahead to keep doing what he was doing with the art and the story. Yeah, the interviews I read, he said they basically were like, sure. Do whatever. Yeah, Yeah, keep going. Yeah, you are a golden boy. Keep going. And there were were people who were below those two at DC who were like, what are you doing to Batman? You're (laughs) ruining him. But the the two at the people at the top were like, no, do it. He was doing extreme things. I understand their fear. Yeah, yeah. 
So Miller would work with Klaus Janssen, whom he had worked with on Daredevil, and Lynn Varley, who he had worked with on Ronan and would later marry and then later divorce. And then bring back. And then bring back. (laughs) For help with the art and the coloring of The Dark Knight Returns. Now, as for reception of The Dark Knight Returns, I'm just going to say that it's still in print today, which is over 30 years later, which is very impressive. Give it away, my age. (laughs) Give it away. (laughs) Hint, hint. I didn't even realize that, Claire. I'm sorry. (laughs) So it's still in print. It constantly tops Best of Comics list and Best of Batman Comics list. And in 2005, this I thought was very impressive, Time Magazine chose it as one of the 10 best English language novels ever written. Wow. 10 best English language novels ever. That's pretty impressive. Um, And also you see echoes of this book in every single Batman project that came after it, from Tim Burton to Chris Nolan to Zack Snyder. To the 90s animated series. To the 90s animated series. It truly is a monumental work, and its influence on media cannot be denied. Like, even if you don't like it, you can't say it hasn't shaped all the Batman to come. Right, and a lot of the movies as well. Yeah. That gritty tone, I feel like, has definitely influenced more than comic book movies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or it especially has influenced the DC universe because Burton's movies were successful, then Nolan's movies were successful, and that was that dark, gritty, gritty like, tone. Yeah, yeah. feel, and DC kind of has tried to continue with it. Yeah, yeah. And so that's my segment on a little bit of Frank that's, Miller. Yeah, that is interesting. That's yeah. cool that he was so eager to learn and then kept on getting feedback and was able to just call his yeah. idol and be like, hey, help It's a me different out. time, yeah, when you yeah. can call your... Well, you call your hero, too, and you go to his place, and he's like, yeah, your work's terrible. And yeah. Like, and instead of going home defeated, he's like, oh, so, so what? Can you help? Yeah. And the guy's like, I guess. And it's, it's awesome. I think that's really cool. That is really cool. It's a good lesson. So into opinions, I mean, you know Claire's opinion on this. She picked it as her birthday special. Yeah, Claire, when was the last time you read it? A couple years ago. That was the first time I'd read it, too. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. I actually didn't get into comics till about 10 years ago when I started dating my boyfriend because he was really into comics. And I think I would have found fantasy comics on my own and maybe some prestige literature comics on my own. Mouse, stuff like that. Mouse. Blankets. Yes. Uh, Craig Thompson in general, but I wouldn't have thought to go look at Batman comics. And anyway, he eventually gave me um, The Dark Knight Returns, and I read it, and I thought it was amazing. And I also felt like I understood the character in a way I hadn't understood it before. Yeah. You like the comic, right? I do. This is the first time I'd I'd read it since I was a teenager. Oh, wow. So that must have been really fun to get to kind of read it it for the first time in a sense. To revisit it as an adult. Did you like it as a teenager? I loved it as a teenager. It's totally the thing you would love as a teenager. Not you, but just in general as a teenager, this would be really cool. It's what you're into. It's gritty and dark. Although it is a little off-putting because it's not pretty. Like Mm. talking about the sexualization and stuff that came after – I feel like there's not a ton of sexualization in this book in the normal mm. way. It's not like a bunch of tight, tight no. costumed, big-breasted women running around. Not it's at all. ugly. Everything in this Everything book is ugly. Is ugly, and it's cool. <laughs> I loved, uh, yeah. So reading it as an adult, I still liked it a lot. And it's funny because I feel like you, we've heard criticisms of Frank Miller before as adults, being like, "Oh, he made Batman a Nazi." Stuff like yeah. this. Yeah, I had heard a lot of criticism 
that this was a misogynistic comic when I was uh, when I was reading you know articles before I reread it and rereading it I didn't really feel that it was misogynistic me neither yeah I mean the role there's not a huge role for women in it but I also thought as far as a role for women for the time it was fairly progressive Carrie yeah I love her she's like my favorite Robin <laughs> she's a Robin it's a girl Robin yeah who's great yeah who's awesome she's like kind of the she provides some levity to the story but she also like makes Batman a little Bruce Wayne a little more human in it I feel too. like she brings the heart to this story. yeah she does she does she's one of my favorites also I grew up watching the cartoon, so the Joker was someone who was always in my life, Yeah, I guess. But I feel like this comic made me understand Batman's relationship with the Joker, at least how I've seen it portrayed my whole life, in a completely different way. And in a way that just connected all of the dots. Like the Joker's obsession with Batman, yeah. his love yeah. for Batman. That he's almost comatose at the beginning until he hears that Batman's been sighted again. Yeah. And then he's like, oh. it's like he comes, he comes yeah, to life again. Yeah, it's so again. creepy and it's so good. And yeah. It's this thing where I always thought Chris Nolan did a really good job portraying the Joker with Heath Ledger, yeah. of course. But this, Frank Miller takes it to a different level in a scarier, more intimate way. Yeah. In a, in a rated R comic book 80s way, too, you know? Yeah. And I feel like with Chris Nolan's Joker, I'd forgotten how informed that Joker was in the Nolan movies from this comic. I'd forgotten a, a lot about how everything Batman was informed by this comic. Maybe because yeah. I read it as an 18-year-old, those movies weren't out yet. Right, or also, you kind of just accept it as canon. Yeah. You know, you for. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is Batman, and yeah. this is an early version of Batman. But there were lines and panels oh, that, right. that I saw that I, you'd see in, in Zack Snyder, Batman, the Batman I mean, vs. Zack Superman. Zack Snyder was essentially trying to make this comic. He was. He was. He was trying to crowbar this comic into a Superman movie. But also <laughs> in the Chris Nolan Batmans, like there is a, um, a line in the beginning of the book where Bruce Wayne is talking to, uh, talking to Commissioner Gordon, and Bruce Wayne says, I believe in Harvey Dent. Mm. Which is the slogan for Two Face and The Dark Knight Rises, or, or no? I'm sorry, and, and The Dark Knight Returns in the second one. Oh right, right. It's been a minute since I saw the Chris Nolan movies. Yeah. I also want to talk about Batman in general and why, as people, we love Batman so much. You love Batman, right? I love Batman. Is he your favorite superhero? No. Who's your favorite superhero? Spider Man. Okay, that's the other one, Yeah, <laughs> basically. But it was this thing when I was thinking about why I loved Batman and, like, I picked this as my birthday episode. Not that that's the end-all, be-all of everything. Yeah. But the Batman is my favorite superhero. And just it's so interesting because he – I don't relate to him at all. I'm not a billionaire. <laughs> I'm not a man. You don't dress up as I'm a bat a, at night. I'm not a ninja. <laughs> but I, I always loved him. He was so cool as a kid. Yeah. I think part of it is the villains, that he has such a colorful uh, assortment of villains. I know. Some of them are sinister, and some of them are, like, versions of David Bowie. (laughs) Like, like this Batman villain is 1980s David Bowie. Right. (laughs) 
And maybe he's kind of like that father figure that you hope will adopt you if your yeah. parents die in a trapeze accident. He does have a mentorness about him. Right. It's the funny thing that I don't even know about myself why I am so drawn to this character. I mean, obviously a ton of people are. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with like the fun, um, the serialness at the time of the TV show and that every you know, Saturday, there would be a new villain yeah. that I got to, you know, yeah. hang out with. Who was your favorite Batman villain? Oh, it's easy to say the Joker, but I don't think that's true. Um, the Riddler? I did like the Riddler. Har- like Harvey like Quinn Riddler. was cool. Harley Quinn is cool. I did like the Riddler a lot. <laughs> yeah. I like Poison Ivy. Oh, Poison. Oh, you're totally right. Poison Ivy is the coolest Batman I've liked villain. her since I was a kid. I have always thought she was cool. I yeah. don't know if it's because she was so pretty. She was a I sexy, myself sexy in her. redhead. <laughs> you know, I'm not like, a redhead. Not to like. <laughs> sexy is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, that's true. Gets along well with plants. <laughs> I, I kill every plant I come in contact with. <laughs> Maybe you, you aspired to be poisoned. Right. That's what it was. Yeah. But. I'll try. Don't kill plants anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Talia Al Ghul is also a really cool criminal. She's a great villain. No, that's true. And the League of Shadows. Yeah. Oh, he just, it's such his interesting world, stories. Yeah, his world seemed so down to earth and flushed out in ways that <laughs> maybe some earth. of the, uh, well, I mean, like he's in a city. He's oftentimes not fighting aliens and stuff. You know, there's something a little more street level about Batman that I think appeals to. Yeah, to you can people. relate to that billionaire, but you, can, you can't relate to that adopted alien from Krypton. You can't. That's two. That's one. That's one step too far. <laughs> I could be a billionaire just as a bat fighting goofy villains in, in the streets of a major I, city. I yes, you do a good job. Thanks, Claire. <laughs> I know you do, would. do a good job. Get my ass kicked. <laughs> Who? What is your favorite Batman publication movie? Well, you know, you gotta love the Nolan movies. I st- I do have a soft spot for the old bad Adam West really? show. I, never I used to watch it, it as a kid. Yeah, Aww. there was a it's it was campy and it knew what it knew it was silly. Like there's this one scene in the Adam West movie where. He's it's famous scene. He's Batman's running around with a giant bomb shaped like the bomb that you you know with a little fuse on top. It's big and round, and he runs around one corner to get rid of it because it's about to go off. And he sees a bunch of school children. He's like, oh, he turns around, runs around another corner, and he passes a bunch of nuns. And he runs around another corner, and there's like a puppy there. And he just looks at the camera and goes, "Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb." <laughs> You know, um, it's so silly. I can't remember the show's creator, but I read an interview where he said that the comic was so bad and he couldn't believe that Warner Brothers wanted him to make this TV show. So he just jacked it up all the way. <laughs> and it's like, we're just going to lean into this then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but it worked, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So and people love that TV show. There's a, I love The Killing Joke, which is an Alan Moore Batman comic. Mm. It's another, another great one. Uh, what about you, Claire? What? I mean, I. I will always have a very soft spot in my heart for the 90s animated series. But I actually think that my favorite Batman piece is Gotham Central by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka, which shows Batman from afar. If you want relatable, this is probably the most relatable, where you actually see Batman through the lens of the Gotham police. Yeah. And just what he is to them. Yeah. And if you really like Batman, I feel like this is a really interesting way to look at him. And I 
I think they kind of tried to do that with Gotham, the TV show, but, and it's nowhere close. Yeah, they, they fell flat, I think. Because Gotham Central, you're right, is phenomenal. And to watch cops, like a normal cop, try to deal with someone like Mr. Oh, Freeze. Oh, Mr. Freeze. Terrifying. 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 You know? And then I have one more question. This dark turn that comics took in 86, a lot due to our boy Frank Miller, do you think it was good? <laughs> Um, That's a very simple way of putting it. Do you think it was good? I think it was going to happen regardless. I think we're lucky that it was in the hands of someone as talented as Frank Miller. I think that's the only way it could have caught on, is that if someone was did something so well. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that in the 80s, media was getting darker and more cynical anyway. Right. And that comics were going to follow that no matter what. And no, that, that's that a it good was, point. And it was— a good thing that it was Frank Miller and, like you said, Alan, Alan Moore, Moore yeah. at the wheel of that that were changing it. Because the stuff that came after in the early 90s, like, some of it was good, some but of some it of it really wasn't that good. You had like, Neil Gaiman. You had Neil Gaiman, but you also had Rob Liefeld and his Who was doing stuff. some interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it was, like, very it, it kind of turned into it kind of became the joke like comics were a joke in that like just big boobs big guns i feel like that was the early 90s yeah just in general yeah. as well but to have something that was thoughtful and dark and gritty and cynical but had a, a greater thesis to it i think was really important and we're lucky that it was frank miller who did that Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. And this is the first of our two birthday spectacular Woo! episodes. Yay. So thanks for picking this, Claire. This is a great topic. Yeah. I'm so glad I'm, to get to revisit. And I'm excited for yours on Hyperion. Yes, on Hyperion. We'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of our credits. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. And we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about The Dark Knight Returns and Frank Miller on our Facebook page. We're going to post some of the articles we used for show research. Our producer, who thinks he's Batman, but is actually... I don't know. The quilter? <laughs> He's the crazy quilt. It's James Bowie. The crazy quilt is the best Batman villain, actually. That's what I should have said. Look him up. The crazy quilt. He's awesome. Uh, the crazy quilt slash our producer is James Bowie. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, who would make a, a pretty fantastic Robin. Oh, yeah. In the, you know, in the vein of, of Carrie Kelly. Yeah. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan whose favorite Batman uh, movies are the Joel Schumacher ones from the late 90s. <laughs> he doesn't listen. <laughs> he does, he'll never know. We've tarnished his good name this way. <laughs> Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll actually see you in one week when we release a bonus episode, an interview with Jordan, Jordan Denae. Yeah! Jordan Denae has a blog and website where she sells original geeky merchandise. Um, it's it's jordandenae.com. That's Jordan Denae, D-E-N-E. And she also has a podcast called The Sartorial Geek, which is really cool, where she interviews creators and people who work in in like a, a geeky nerdy way. Nerdy ways. Yeah, nerdy yeah. ways. Uh, 
whether it be like makeup artists or whatever. And um, and she has a magazine coming out, also called The Sartorial Geek, which is coming out in June, I believe. Yeah, so, the second issue. The second issue. First one's already out, yeah. So check that out. That's next week. Now, in two weeks, we're back to our regular scheduled programming. <laughs> Which is uh, Claire and I talking about my birthday pick. Hyperion yeah. by Dan Simmons. So start reading now. Yeah, start reading Hyperion by Dan Simmons now. I'm not going to say what I turned down to pick this because there are two things I feel like people would be mad at me yeah, for not gonna, picking. Yeah, we're going to have a chat about that later. <laughs> so thank you all so much for listening and we will see you in one week.